That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome to Stand Up Speak Up, a podcast dedicated to spreading awareness about issues that usually get swept under the rug. I'm your host, Carla Stevens-Tolstoy, and this episode is brought to you by Wearable Therapy by Toki. Today we'll hear the story of Patricia Rodenbaugh. Patricia was put into foster care at the age of 12. By her later teenage years, she had given birth to not one, but two children. Amazingly, rather than continue the cycle, Patricia was able to give her children the life that she never had. The story begins in 1972. Patricia's abusive mother decided she was too much to handle and turned her over to the foster care system. By 1973, after running away from multiple foster homes, Patricia was placed in McLaren Hall Children's Center in L.A. and was under the state's care. By late 1973, I had become a permanent ward of the court of the state of California, and uh, I was permanently put in the foster system until I either became of age or whatever. What are your thoughts on the foster system in general? Do you think it needs a, <laughs> like a complete overhaul? Is there anybody that does it well? You know, you got to remember, my experience goes back to the 1970s, okay? The last time I was in a foster home was in 1976, so I can only judge up until that point. I don't know what they're like today. I would really like to believe that it's a lot better. It seems like in California, they it was very easy for them to hand a kid over to somebody. And they didn't check on a lot of them. I've known good foster parents, and I've known really crappy ones. And I didn't stay in the bad ones for long. Long enough to change my clothes, pack my bag, and I'm out of here. Now, how would you know they're bad? Like, how would you know right away they're bad? Well, you go for a pre-placement, or at least back then. They would take you for a pre-visit. You go spend the day with the family. They get to know you. You get to know them. Of course, you're eager to go. You're willing to say, yes, I'll go. I don't care how they are because you want out of being locked up. So if they accepted you, then you would get a, a placement date, and then the social worker would come and bail you out of McLaren Hall and put you in that foster home. But I would know from the pre-visit whether I was going to like them or not, or if they were even going to like me. And it's totally understandable. They cannot possibly like every kid that walks through their door. Was McLaren Hall, like, what was it like? Was it like a group home? No, no, it's more institutional than that. When you pulled up, there was a great big wrought iron gate that you had to go up this driveway. And so they had a talk box there and the driver of whoever was taking you there would talk to them. And then they'd let you in. Okay, when you go in, the place looked like, the best way to describe it, it looks like an octopus had been set down and his legs are all out. So you got the rotunda in the middle where everything came together. And then you had different branches, girls wing, boys wing, pixies and tigers, which are little boys, little girls. They had infirmary and uh, dining hall. It was institutional looking. 
When many of us think of Los Angeles, we think of Hollywood, celebrities, fame, glamour, money. But there's a much darker side. LA is sometimes referred to as the gang capital of America. Even today, when crime numbers are significantly lower than years before, crime in LA peaked between the 1970s and 1990s. Gangs were rampant. There were many tough neighborhoods, and drugs were readily available. Of all places for young children to be homeless and on the run, LA was one of the worst. Patricia told us how she decided it was time to get out of there. I was blessed with the good sense to know when it was time to leave, and. When I was of age, you know, 18, 19 years old, okay, I can come and go as I please by this point. And I, my father lived in Texas, and I knew that it was too, it was time to leave LA because things were becoming way too easy, way too often, and becoming way too bad a habit. And I didn't want to, I didn't want to keep going that way. It would have ruined my life, especially if I'd raised my children there. I just, that was my real turning point. When my kids were born, I said, I don't want them growing up here. So I left and never went back. How old were you with your, when you got pregnant with your first? I was 16, had my daughter when I was 17. It's amazing. And did you feel responsible at that time? Did you feel like you could manage that responsibility? Well, I allowed that responsibility because I was in the court system. I had left. California. I had gone across state lines with an overaged man. I was underage. I was pregnant. My social worker gave me the choice of either coming back to California. She would have the police pick me up because she knew where I was. And of course, I'm a runaway and I'm still war of the court. Or I could get married and become emancipated. So, I mean, really, you know, what would you do? (laughs) It was uh, emotionally, no, I was not ready for it, but it was an opportunity to step out of where I was. No more foster homes. Were you in love? No. No, he knew that. But he was of convenience. I was convenient to him. He was convenient to me. How did you meet him? How did you even build the relationship? Well, I just had the good fortune of being on the wrong beach at the wrong night and met him. <laughs> Things happen. So, you know, you're young, you're stupid. You go to the beach at night and you meet strange people. So, And do you still keep in contact with them? or? Oh, my God. No, he's dead. <laughs> he ruined his own life. He threw his own life away. And years ago, I left him when I was 18 because then I knew that the, they couldn't touch me no more. I was clear, you know. So after my 18th birthday, I was like, sayonara, man, I'm out of here. So took the kids left. <laughs> so how many kids did you have with him? I had two with him, and then I had one more after that. When I got pregnant with my second kid was the last time he ever touched me, because <laughs> I knew I was leaving. I can't even imagine all this. So at 13, you're quite mature, I suppose, right? Because you're having to grow up quite fast. Yeah, I had an absentee mother, not around much. So, I mean, I was kind of used to being on my own. It wasn't that big a deal to me. So, I, I, I guess, you know, now that I know that other people didn't live like that, that it might seem different to me now. But at the time, I didn't, I didn't really think a whole lot of it. I mean, it didn't scare me. Of course, I didn't sleep on the streets or nothing like that, so I was too smart for that. 
But what I find amazing is you'd think, okay, well, this happened in 1973, but I talk to kids today and it's the same situation today. It doesn't seem like it's gotten oh, better. It you know, hasn't gotten any better. Oh, I don't know. I I don't know anything about the system anymore. I, I know it's been in horrible need of, of, you know, reorganization for probably decades. It's probably surmounted to the point where nobody even wants to look at the pile anymore, which is really sad. While it's sad that there are so many problems with the foster care system today, it's inspiring to see people step up and find ways to make it better. Ray Deck III launched a child placement agency called Skokum Kids, staffed with volunteers. The facility cares for children entering or transitioning into foster care, allowing time for social workers to find proper long-term placement. Skokum Kids have been successful in helping many children so far, largely thanks to community generosity. Ray spoke in a TED Talk about the support they received while getting started. We need a location. Well, a member of our startup team uh, happened to know there's a church in the community that had a parsonage that was sitting vacant. And they voted unanimously to give us the use of that building for two years, rent-free. That was a lot of work. We had a lot of upgrades and improvements to make. Kitchen floor, some electrical appliances, new furniture. And though it was, we estimate, about $15,000 worth of improvements and upgrades to that house, when it was all done, we finished in, in May of 2015. We were out of pocket with $1,000. The rest of the labor and materials were donated by community partners who were eager to help us get started. What were the staff like at McLaren Hall? Fairly easygoing for the situation. They had a lot of girls on the wing to have to contend with. Understaffed, I would say you'd have maybe two counselors and a head counselor per shift, but they're taking care of 50, 60 girls or better. And I mean, that's a lot for three people to handle. So they were okay. You know, they could be a little strict, but there were, they did try in some ways to make it not so hard. Like they would play music at night. They had a, they had an intercom system through the rooms and you could ask for a certain record to be played. Of course it was albums, you know, back then. And uh, they would do that though. And that was really cool. It was a little piece of home that you could have while you were locked up in the cage, you know. After hearing Patricia talk about her time at McLaren Hall, we were somewhat surprised. McLaren Hall's dark history is well known. During its 40 years in operation, McLaren was overcrowded and often abused the very children it was supposed to be protecting. There are dozens of stories online from adults who are still haunted by what they went through at McLaren. One person told the story of being taken to a secluded room held down by two staff members while being beaten by another. Other stories spoke of children having their arm broken and another needing stitches in their head for injuries caused by staff. This all led to illegal action from numerous groups and individuals and a number of McLaren staff members were even criminally prosecuted. Still, we did find a handful of people who, like Patricia, described their experience as more tolerable. In rare cases, some even praised McLaren. So while Patricia's personal experience may not have been quite as bad as others who stayed at McLaren, one violent incident did force her to spend time at Central Juvenile Hall, a place she describes as much worse. After a girl named Brenda was attacked and beaten, Patricia and another girl, Ruby, came dangerously close to being charged, despite not being involved. 
it was at night. We were already getting, we were already in our rooms for bed, okay? And then we heard this big commotion. Now, in the uh, the rooms, each had a great big glass window that looked out into the hallway. And each of the rooms were catty corner from each other. So the room that this was taking place in was right across from where we could see. So we were looking through the window and we saw the fight taking place. Next thing you know, boom, 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 here comes counselors running down the hall and they're running in there to break up the fight. Now, Ruby and I never stepped foot in that room. We never even got near the door. So I don't know why we got pulled into it. But anyway, so Brenda got beat up really bad and she had a very good friend named Linda Bohannon who told the counselors what had happened to her. One of the counselors that broke up the fight, her name was Bobby Williams. And she was a young girl at the time in her 20s, you know, and uh, not particularly mean to any one person. So I was really surprised at this. Anyways, um, the next day after the fight, the head of the of the counselors, her name was Mrs. Shepard, she called us in from school one at a time. Six of us got pulled in there and told that charges were being brought up on us on assault and battery on Brenda. And I was like, I wasn't even in that room. And she was like, well, you're going to have to wait and you're going to have to talk to them about it. All we know is that they've sent charges and now you have to be moved to Central Juvenile Hall. And I was like, okay, well, I've never been to Central before, and I got to tell you, that place is horrible. Absolutely, it's a prison for children is what it is. They hauled us all off, packed us up that day, sent us all to Central. Scared like hell. I'm 15 years old. I've never been in a place like this before. The worst thing I've ever been in was a jail cell or McLaren Hall, and there's a big, wide gap between McLaren Hall and Central. You know, as bad as Mac was, it was nothing like Central. So we're there for six weeks. They did each of us uh, one week at a time. They tried each girl. The first four that were really in the fight were the first four to be tried. One of them was Ruby Rivera's older sister, and I can't remember her name. I think it was Lorraine, but I'm not sure. Anyways, um, so they were all found guilty. So here comes week five and week six for me and Ruby. Now this Bobby Williams had been testifying every week, and she comes up to testify directly against us after she's already put in a statement. Not only did she say we were involved in the fight, she said that I was the one that was on top of Brenda hitting her when she came in the room. This was an outright lie. And as far as I'm concerned, she was acting on behalf of McLaren Hall. McLaren Hall did this to me. So by week five, when I go on trial, she recants her statement. All of a sudden, she can't absolutely remember that I'm the one that was in there. She can't absolutely identify that I was even in the room at the time. Neither does Linda Bohannon, and Brenda said, well, she was too busy being beat up to notice who was in the room. So, okay, and then the next week, they did the same thing with Ruby. They couldn't remember her being in there. 
And I know she wasn't because she was in the room with me. So I know she was innocent. And they sent us two back to McLaren Hall because we were cleared of all charges. But it still doesn't excuse the fact that they put us through an absolute hell for six weeks for something we didn't do. And I never understood why a counselor, of all people, testified that I did that. What was the experience like for six weeks in Central? That was really bad. I saw a lot of violence there that I didn't know that young women were capable of, for one thing, and senseless violence on top of it. Like the first week I was there, they attacked some poor pregnant girl. There was three of them. They ganged up on her in the bathroom. They beat the living hell out of her. She got hauled off a bloody mess. None of those girls got sent off anywhere. It was like the counselors favored them. And I learned right then and there, okay, we need to stay out of everybody's way. We got to stay under the radar here. Don't talk to nobody. Don't make no waves. Don't do nothing. And that's exactly what I did while I was there. I was quiet as a church mouse. I'm not stupid. I could not go up against what these girls were capable of doing. Did you ever get any of those girls' backstories, like what brought them there? No, no. I didn't want to know those girls. I knew what they were capable of. I knew what a lot of them's charges were. And after what I saw the first week I was there, I was like, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. I stayed in my little room all the time. They had to make me come out to go use the bathroom. And I would only go in there then if a counselor was going to be in there for the showering and that. Because I just did not trust them girls. Coming up, we'll continue with Patricia's story how she raised her children, and how she put her experience to use, helping other troubled youth. Just a quick interjection. I'm Zach Tolstoy, one of the founders of Stand Up Speak Up. Our podcast is just one part of the Stand Up Speak Up brand. We are supported by an online store of the same name where we sell a variety of artisan products. We have an ongoing blog series with over a dozen contributors, and we offer a series of interactive workshops. Throughout the different iterations of Stand Up Speak Up, our core message and purpose have always been the same. To create a site that allows our customers and us more opportunities to speak up about and support causes, organizations, and groups that we're passionate about, and that of course could use additional support. My mother and I have learned about allyship over the years from what feels like a thousand and one places and people. We want to encourage members of this fantastic Stand Up Speak Up community to come along and learn with us. So along with our team, we created this workshop featuring videos, articles, and exercises that have really helped the two of us in our own journey towards allyship. Don't worry, it doesn't cost any money, and you don't need to make an account to access the information. We want to make our workshop as accessible as possible because we believe in our message and understand the importance of spreading awareness. The Ally Workshop is split into eight parts, including interactive quizzes and helpful videos. It's intended to introduce you to new skills and courses of action in the world of allyship. The workshop is easy to use and can be done entirely on your cell phone, tablet, or computer at your own pace. 
with each of the eight sections taking an average of about 15 minutes or so to complete, or a breezy couple hours on a Sunday afternoon. Do you have like memories of people doing kind, unexpected things for you with, with good intentions? Oh, yeah. But I try to gravitate to nice people, you know. Uh, but yes, I, 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 do, uh, I do appreciate people that, that go out of their way to do something nice for someone else. Um, always appreciative when it may have been someone in authority. You know, I had one social worker that she knew where I was when I ran away, yet she allowed me to enroll in school. She was not going to drag me back to a foster home because she knew I'd only run away again. That was an act of kindness. I was able to go back to school. So stuff like that, yeah. And it's when people can help you, they're in the position to be able to help you, then it's all better So, because it makes you a better person too. And it did make Patricia a better person. Rather than follow in the footsteps of her mother, she learned from those experiences and made sure the same thing never happened to her children. Patricia tells us how she was able to become a good parent without having a proper role model of her own. Because I knew what I missed. I knew what I always felt like I needed and it wasn't there. And I didn't ever want my kids to feel that way. I really resented my mother for the choices that she made. Now, you know, later in life, I can look back and I see she had a lot of emotional baggage. And I mean a lot. And I didn't realize that when I'm, you know... 15, 16 years old, and then she died when I was 20, and so a lot of unanswered issues there and everything. So I just, I didn't want my kids to ever feel that way. What do you think is the biggest vulnerability for young women that are in the foster system or, or, or have an unhappy home life? Like How vulnerable do you think they are to, to predators and to... Oh, very. Because most of them like that carry low self-esteem. And, and when you have low self-esteem, you will look for what you are missing in other forms. Some turn to drugs, some turn to sex, some turn to money. You know, it just whatever appeals to them and gives them any kind of a satisfied feeling for what's missing in them. What do you think the system could do to, because I agree with you. I mean, the, the, the kids that I work with that, you know, end up on the streets or end up in risk scenarios, they have very low self-esteem. They just have no confidence in themselves and they disguise it a lot with backtalk or being tough or things like that. But I often like reflect, like how can self-esteem be taught? How can you rehabilitate self-esteem? Yeah, see, there, there. you're asking the age-old question of how you break the cycle. And until someone is willing to just step up and say, well, this didn't work for my parents, I should do this a different way. But unfortunately, human nature predicts that we go the path of which we are led. And if that's the way you're raised, you know, then you don't really think much about it passing it on to your children. I see a lot of women in the grocery stores that they are screaming at this poor child that's like three, four years old. They're dragging them behind them in the cart. The kid's obviously tired, but they are yelling at them like their mother yelled at them. And this is all they know. So you got to break that cycle somewhere. 
you know, how to do that, I don't know. But you did it. So how, how did you do it? Like if you could bottle that, what would that be? Well, I guess um, number one, I would say stay out of the bottle. That would be start. <laughs> you know, uh, that that was a huge uh, effective stone right there. But uh, I would just have to say, if you could, you know, be honest with yourself and and know what you are lacking, what you lacked from your childhood. Give your kids that. Make sure that they don't feel that. I, I mean, I don't know how else to put it. Everyone knows what hurt them, and and so they should know from personal experience. Okay, this hurts. Therefore, I shouldn't want my kid to go through that. How do you not erase those memories? But how do you live with those memories? Like, how do you not get a feeling of of dread or remorse if you think about things? Like, you know, how do you manage through that? Try to keep the down days down to a minimum. To be honest with you, I have a lot of issues that to this day are, are unresolved. I got, you know, my uh, my mother is a vicious source of my contention. So, and I have, you know, a million unanswered questions because she up and died on me when I was only 20. So, you know, that's something that I have, I guess I still haven't resolved. But there's nothing I can do about it, you know complain to my husband, you know, and <laughs> he's so good. He listens. He's so wonderful. How did you find the husband that would make you like happy? Like how many bad decisions did you make with men until you figured it out? I don't think people should be allowed to get married till they're at least 40 <laughs> because <laughs> we make all our bad choices prior to that. Um, I, I've been married four times, but this last time, uh, my 22nd anniversary is coming up. In September, 22 years, I finally found the right one, you know, because you make bad mistakes, you get married for the wrong reasons. And like one time I got married because everybody else I knew was married. I was tired of being the single one in the crowd. I wanted somebody. So I settled and I shouldn't have done that. But looking back now, it was not a good idea. But at the time, it seemed logical. So if you could talk to your 15 year old self right now what would you say at 15 i would say hang on one more year because i'm gonna find my dad and my life is gonna change you found your dad yeah my mother took me away when i was five um as punishment to my father and uh get to see him again until i turned 16 almost 17 and it was it just changed my whole life sorry i get a little no, of course. What would you say to yourself at 25? There again, it'll get better. You just got to hang on. I don't know. I was making bad choices at 25. So kind of a midlife crisis. I um, felt crappy about turning 25. <laughs> That's how that started. And then what would you say to your 30-year-old self? That I should have been moving on. I should have seen things more clearly. I should have. I was living in Kentucky, and I had no business living in Kentucky, and I'm not a Kentucky person. I am an L.A. girl snatched up from the suburbs in downtown L.A., and I'm plopped down in the middle of redneck USA, Kentucky, and I used to ask myself, what the hell am I doing here? Oh, it was horrible. (laughs) It wasn't horrible. It just wasn't for me. It wasn't me, you know, and I was very miserable. So, and I, that's when I was 30. 
So, but I was getting close to leaving because I left in when I was 32. And then how were, how were you doing at 40? 40, I was very good. I was married to the husband I have now and I was very happy. So what makes him so wonderful, do you think? I always put up with me for 22 years. I'd say that's a big plus right there. So I wasn't always an easy person to get along with, I'm sure. So we've heard about how Patricia was able to turn her own life around and provide a great experience for her family. But it doesn't end there. Having first-hand experience in the foster care system made Patricia the perfect candidate to work alongside other troubled youth, which she did for many years. At some point, I was offered the opportunity to become a security transport driver, ironically, transporting little juvenile delinquents around (laughs) from placement to placement and foster homes and all this other stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, I got to do this. And I did for almost 10 years. And I finally ended up the last job I had. I was transporting prisoners to and from their work program. They, I would pick them up from the prison in Topeka, drive them to North Topeka, drop them off where they worked at. And I'd pick them up in the afternoon, take them back. And that was really an experience in itself to get to know these women. And you talk about some hard stories now. Every, uh, you know, it really makes you realize that every person has got the basic good line in them, but they have made such bad choices. I mean, you get to know these people and they seem like, wow, you know, you could be sitting down having lunch with them in a cafe. You wouldn't think twice about it, but they've been accused of or, you know, found guilty of some really bad thing. And so, I mean, people make bad choices, but there they're may still be good people. And that was a very interesting job. I really enjoyed my, my years working in security transport. What was one of the most difficult stories you heard that just made you think, wow, this person doesn't deserve this much sadness? Wow, that's tough because I used to take some of them to Larned, which is the state hospital in Kansas, the criminal ones. I would have to say, that, you know, the first one that comes to mind, and it's always been the one that popped in my mind, and it's really the one that made me quit working for one outfit. I was transporting these people back and forth, like I said, to Larned from Shawnee County Jail to Larned and back again for their for their court and all that. And there was this one guy who was accused of, now I don't know what his outcome was, I don't go to court with him, but uh, he was accused of child molestation of a five-year-old little girl. Okay, so that makes you cringe. Oh, God, you know. So now, a couple years later, the same place that is transporting these people, they're running low on money, so they got to expand. So they bought the local cab company, yellow cab company. So now when we, the drivers for security transport didn't have any runs, they would compensate us by letting us do what they call SRS runs, which are welfare people in cabs. You don't carry any money. You only take these little tickets that they have that they can get on the bus with or they can get a cab ride with or whatever. You take them back for it, get their checks, cash, grocery store. And I picked up this guy and his mother and I recognized him as that guy that had been accused of this rape. And I was like, I shouldn't know this about this guy. I'm a cab driver. I am not supposed to be privy to that kind of information. 
about this guy sitting in my cab. Whether he is guilty or not, I don't know. I have no idea what his outcome was, what had happened in his trial or none of that. So I can't judge him. But I just felt so horrible that I knew that about him. And little by little, over the next couple of years, I had picked up more than one that I had transported to jail or to Larned or something like that. And it just got to be too much. I, I told my husband, I don't like knowing what I know. You're right. It almost it would almost be like somebody that can read somebody's mind. You know, it's like a curse. It is a curse. That's exactly what it is. And that's the way I felt when I picked those people up. You have such an interesting life. I'm like, okay, so tell me about this job at the prison. How does this work? Well, I don't know what the merit system is, but they allow the certain prisoners to be able to go off grounds. They're trusted to be gone eight hours a day on a job. That's, they're not chained up. They're not locked up or nothing. Those girls could have walked off where they were working at any given time, but I never knew of any that did. And for, as far as mine, all I had to do was pass a background check for them to allow me on the prison ground to pick them up. And then basically, that's how that worked. Now, for security transport, when I was moving the kids and that, uh, there again, background check. And I had to have what they call a merchant guard license as well. But I did not carry a gun. I chose not to. I didn't want a firearm. Okay, so when you would take the girls, what were the jobs they would do? They worked at a place called Heartland China, and they would uh, they get these blank plates, and then they put these decals on the plate. Then they fire them, and then they got shipped off to all kinds of places, uh, like In-N-Out Burger and places like that. And did the girls like it? Was it a positive? I mean, did they prefer it to being in the jail? Oh, Yeah. Anybody that get on work release, you know, they'd be really happy because at least you're getting out, you know, eight hours a day. Even if you're, which a lot of them work on the road crews out here, they pick up trash and stuff like that. You see them out in the little orange vests all the time. They even like that just because they get to get out. Some research online echo what Patricia said. Those who took part in work release programs found them very beneficial. In a YouTube video from the Washington State Department of Corrections, former resident Tanya Leverich shared her thoughts on the work release program. You build self-esteem. Self-esteem is such a big thing for us. You know, we have a job, we have money, we get released with money and a home. You don't get released just out on the streets. You're just a new person when you leave work release. I tried to keep them girls as happy as I could. Like, I would take different routes going back to the prison. That would make them so happy. You have no idea. Just to see a different street and stuff like that. So I was pretty fortunate that when I got a hold of them, they were in a good mood. How do you keep a positive mind that people are good? I mean, you're, you're dealing with all these criminals all these times, these people that make bad decisions. How did you not see the world through dark lenses like with a lot of them i mean you're in close contact with them every day so you see them on a more normal day-to-day basis of what kind of a person they are you get a little bit of their political views their religious views in casual conversation and stuff so i mean it, it really it, it 
it makes me feel like a lot of good people make bad decisions. And I would say probably 99% of them, if they could go back and do it over, they would change it. Or at least I would hope they would. How do you enjoy retirement? What, what's like, do you, do you love it or? Well, I retired because I got real sick and, um, I end up, I had cancer, which I'm over that now. Thank God. And I've been cancer free for like four years now. And I'm so grateful. But, um, so, and after that, but the chemo and all that really took a toll on me. And so I just don't work anymore. I stay home and I like that. I gotta tell you, I like that. So do you ever get Anxious if you're alone with your thoughts or you think about your past or you or are you able to just kind of be at peace? It depends on what you think about. And I try to stay away from, you know, things that I know are really going to bother me. I try not to let them pop in my head. And music has a lot to do with it. I mean, if I feel like I'm getting in a down mood, I do have a good sense to put a little bit of you know, more upbeat music on to pull me out of it. So I, I guess I was blessed with a little bit of common sense. And that helps a lot. And I have a wonderful husband that I can talk to. And, and that helps a lot, too. As we end this podcast, I just want to acknowledge all the people out there that have had a tough childhood. And they pushed through. And even though the system worked against them, and sometimes they didn't have the right advocates in place to give them hope and security and safety... I applaud all of you who've been able to push through and for Patricia for sharing her story which she hasn't even really shared with her own kids we'll leave you with a song by Quentin Larry Roy Cameron a teen rapper from Kenora Ontario Canada the song is called Mockingbird and it's the story of his life all before he even turned 16 I got in trouble with the feds and then it had me doing time I've been stressing at the age of 7 Smoking weed when I was 8 and drinking at the age of 11 Smoking almost every day and popping cause at 13 Most of the times I overdosed just to deal with all the grief I had when I felt all alone I used to be just like a bully up in elementary school Because I grew up being bullied then I started skipping school I got into the gang life throwing up PK They told me I ain't living right initiated in the gang Brainwashed from rock and rap growing up as a kid Always getting into school and having bad relationships I gave my family hard times Back up in my younger days I did my time and wrote my rhymes And told my family I'll behave I was just a young kid Thinking I was badass For all the stupid stuff I did I never thought that writing raps Would keep me out of trouble And make me who I am today I'm getting through my struggles Even getting stronger every day I've written what I've all been through Expressing all my feelings Let me tell you what I'm going through And tell you how I'm feeling Baby makes me feel I'm trapped Like I'm back in custody And I'm sick of mostly stop Trying to fuss and cuss at me Making me feel victimized With the constant obligating Always trying to criticize Man, this shit is complicating That's the shit that I'm condemning And I don't give a damn If they say this is offending I want them to understand Victim needs to regulate The way they're treating kids Like shit, they complicate Then confiscate Then cause these kids to throw a fit And after every demonstrate They're against kids and resist Every time kids making place For almost breaking arms and wrists And I am expecting them That they will admonish me Just cause I'm correcting them Correcting Bayfield honestly I'm just sharing my perception 10 months in Bayfield 
myself I want this to take exception just to make my stay feel Like this place is necessary, not so diabolical Then this would be preliminary for a life that's logical Living life without my mother, separated from my sister Separated from my brother, makes me feel I'm living better Grandma's living on a mess, struggling to pay the bills It hurts me when I see her stressed with taking all these different pills Where grandpa's getting older and this time is slowly coming And I'm also getting older, waiting for my time that's coming I'm still struggling to upgrade my high school education And I'm barely staying up late because my medication Now I'm dealing with the grief I had when I was just a child And I never got to meet my dad when I was just a child And I'm staying off the drugs and alcohol because it's killing me Staying off the drugs and alcohol is not healing me I just hope it all works out when I get to go back home I haven't been up in my house ever since three years ago I'm missing all my siblings and my friends and family Even through all this quibbling I still love my family And to my current agency I'm telling you I had enough This treatment's really phasing me I'm telling you I smartened up Please just give me one more chance And if I do make one mistake Won't you send me to rehab and put me in a stricter place Brianna Cameron, please don't be so damn submissive You gotta settle down, you're in a place that is permissive Remember mom is always in your heart And you have a dad that cares My daddy left me from the start He was never really there for me just to break my fall When I busted up my face But mom was dead when I first called Before she left and I turned eight Now and then I shed some tears about the fact our mom is gone She's been gone for several years It's hard when I try moving on I think about the family daily Now that we're all separated But this feeling drives me crazy Knowing we're all separated When we're talking on the phone I can hear it in your voice That you're feeling all alone But still rejoice when you hear my voice Please greet your treatment Your court order to get all your anger, grief And all your worth is trouble sorted No more starting beef with all these bitches That you're living with Cause it only worries me That you're catching charge again And being jailed till 23 Dawson wouldn't want that even wouldn't be so happy our grandparents hope that we would stay out of jail for the family Please don't disappoint them We both gotta behave for all five of us to rejoin And show them we're well behaved Hope you enjoyed our musical selection for this episode And now, for your bonus content today We've got a piece from Vanessa Evans Posted on HelloPoetry.com Titled the homeless boy. At age five, Lincoln was taken from his single mom, who would hit him constantly, and put into a foster home that already contained four other boys, all older than himself. He was so frightened, Lincoln had spent all of his life up until this point alone in isolation and fear. While this new home eliminated the isolation, he still spent most of his waking hours in tears. There were many people surrounding him, but no one to trust. He had parents who only wanted his welfare check, brothers who only wanted him as a punching bag, and a social worker who only saw him as another lost soul amongst thousands. By age 12, Lincoln had been in six different homes, all the same as the last. His first had taught him to be afraid. His second had taught him not to trust. His fourth had taught him to run, and his fifth had taught him to fight. He learned that some things are too good to be true in his sixth home. He had the perfect family, a loving mom and dad who actually cared about him. But then everything changed. His new dad lost his job, and everything fell apart. Stress tearing apart a couple, and Lincoln being shipped off to yet another new place. He was 13 and living in a group home for boys. He felt the push of pressure and loneliness, and found a love for the taste of alcohol and craved the dullness it brought him. 
Lincoln was bullied constantly and certainly fought back. He had learned from his first mother the ability to use his fists to let out some of the anger, the rage that wouldn't go away. Soon, the aggression building in Lincoln would prove to be too much for the system, and he would be cast away, labeled as hopeless, and sent to a juvenile center to be away from the socially acceptable people. Only 16 now, and already Lincoln had built a criminal record, years of low self-esteem and insecurity leading to a life of substance abuse and bloody knuckles. No one looked at him and said, now there's a good kid. But instead, mothers quickly hushed their children asking, why is his face bleeding? Or judgmental looks at the tattoos crisscrossing and covering the scars he was too ashamed to let anyone see. By 18 and out on the street, he wandered from place to place, staring out with blank eyes, hoping that someone would look into his eyes and see all the pain and maybe rescue him. But all anyone ever saw was just a punk who should stop smoking and just get a job. As if it were that easy. As if anyone had ever taught him how to lead a life that didn't end up in prison. On Lincoln's 21st birthday, there was no one around to celebrate, no one to smile, no one to care. He sat on a lonely bench wondering if his birth mother was somewhere out there knowing that today was his birthday, or if she was even alive. He thought about his father, thinking maybe he was leading some luxurious life not even knowing that he had a son out in the world all alone. He held on to the hope that maybe if his father knew he existed, that maybe he would care. But inside he knew. He knew that no one cared and no one ever would. No one would ever be concerned about the boy who never knew love. Thank you for listening to Stand Up, Speak Up, and we'll see you next time. I'm Andrea Askowitz. And I'm Allison Langer. And we are the hosts of Writing Class Radio, a podcast, but we are so much more. We have writing classes. So if you are looking for live online classes where you can join a community, write to a prompt, get feedback, and get better, check out all our classes at writingclassradio.com. And listen to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts and at writingclassradio.com.